was just watching it. That I, I, I find it striking. The, the couple of things that, that seem particularly striking to me is that those cleavages are very precise temporally. So if you measure them, um, they happen once every 25 minutes, plus or minus a couple of minutes. So there's a pretty good clock that's driving these cleavages. Another thing that's not apparent from looking at it, but it's equally striking, is that these cleavages are they're driven by some autonomous system of regulatory molecules. Um, so the cell cycle in, in general is built to allow you to replicate your DNA, double your DNA, and then divide the cell into, into to two pieces. But you can block both of those um, um, end goals of, of the cell cycle, and you still get this rhythm happening once every 25 minutes. And the last event we're seeing is going from four cells to eight cells? Right there. Yep. And that, that, that cleavage happened in the, in the plane of the plane board, so you, you could, Can't you could see barely see it. Yeah. Thank you. I'm assuming these experiments have been done, but people have separated those very early blastomeres and shown that they'll still divide at the right time. Is that, that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll show you even um, late on in the paper, we'll, we'll get to the issue of whether there's communication between the blastomeres or not, and I'll, I'll show you the classic paper first that, that showed that first. All right, so as, um, as biological oscillations go, this is as regular of one as you can get. And it's the kind of thing that, that you would think that we've got a chance of, of understanding. So um, the first question um, I'll deal with um, is how are these oscillations produced? And then the second question is uh, how is spatial coordination ensured within the large frog egg and then within the multicellular embryo? All right, so we know from work of a bunch of people but basically, the frog cell cycle is, is driven by the periodic synthesis and degradation of cyclin. So here's a detailed time course of um, cyclin accumulation. It increases more or less linearly with respect to time. It crashes down. Um, when cyclin is synthesized, it binds to CDK1. And that initially produces very little CDK1, a little bit, but not too much CDK1 activity. And then it explodes up to a high level of activity. And it's this explosion up of CDK1 activity that allows a cell to go from interphase to M phase. And then as, as soon as it gets up to high levels, it starts dropping back down again. Cycloprotein goes away. That inactivates the, the CDK1. And that allows the, the cell to get from M phase back into interphase. So this is, um, this is basically an oscillator that's involves this kind of sawtooth accumulation and destruction of cyclin, and then this kind of pulsatile explosive activation and inactivation of CDK1. So in that graph, it looks like the CDK1 activity persists slightly after the cyclin has gone away. Yeah. I think that's um, either experimental, I think it's experimental error, actually. Um, but it could, it could result from the fact that um, the CDK1 at this stage is in its almost completely active phosphorylation state. And in this stage, it's in its 
almost completely inactive phosphorylation state. Um, and so you're sort of biased one way or the other by the specific activity of those CK1 complexes. And why but I, would, I wouldn't take too much out of, out of that, that time. And why are there larger error bars on the CDK1 than the cyclone? It all comes from the uh, gel electrophoresis things at the bottom, which is the lower intrinsic. Yep, the, um, the, the standard assays for CDK1 are to, um, to pull the CDK1 out of an extract and mix it with an artificial substrate and, and ATP. And in our hands, anyway, you never do much better than about plus or minus 25%, even looking at an exact replicates so in, in, in this assay. Um, the assay for cycling, either using S35 labeling or using immunoblotting, typically you get like plus or minus 15% variability there. Is that significant? It's a sawtooth and not a kind of sign? Yeah, I think so. And, uh, so. So this looks sort of like a relaxation oscillator. It looks like something where this explosion phase has something to do with the positive feedback loop. I'll show you exactly that here. So this is the basic circuit. It's a simplified version of the circuit, but it, it captures all the essential features of the, that, that give rise to these oscillations. There's cyclin being synthesized at a constant rate, binds with high affinity to CDK1, and then the right phosphorylation <coughs> is active as a protein kinase, phosphorylates hundreds of proteins. Okay. Among the proteins that it phosphorylates and regulates, is this thing, the anaphase promoting complex or cyclosome, and it's the CDC20 bound version of the anaphase promoting complex in this, in this case. And through poorly understood, through a poorly understood mechanism, this brings about the activation of this. Then when this is active, it can catalyze the polyubiquitylation of cyclin, either cyclin bound with CDK1 or free cyclin proteins. And that tags the cyclin for destruction by the proteasome. So we've got cyclin binding here, makes this get active, that makes this get active, and that brings about the inactivation of this through the destruction of the cyclin subunit. So does the cyclin have to be ripped off ripped off the CDK1 so before it's destroyed, or is it? Um, it's probably ripped off by the proteasome, but the CDK1 doesn't get ripped off along with it. Um, um, the dissociation rate for cyclin from an active CDK complex is, is about once every four hours. So, so it's, it probably is being pulled off rather than just um, getting destroyed when it's, when it's flipped off. All right, so negative feedback loop. Um, there's a conjecture from Rene Thomas from, I, I think, the, the early 1980s that, that any chemical oscillator, biochemical oscillator, has to have a negative feedback loop built into it. And, and certainly all the um, oscillators I know of that anybody has ever modeled has a negative feedback loop built into it. Um, and this negative feedback loop is absolutely essential for getting oscillations in a, in a frog egg. So, um, and this is something that Andrew did. If you, um, if you um, drive a cell cycle with a, a version of cyclin that can't be ubiquitinolated and so can't be destroyed, it's perfectly good at driving um, cells or cell-free extracts from uh, interphase into M phase, but they then get stuck in M phase. 
permanently. Um, or if you inhibit this, again, you get into M phase just fine, but then you're permanently stuck in M phase. So there's negative feedback loop. We figured it would be there in an oscillator circuit, and it's essential for oscillations. No surprise there. Um, there are also these two other circuits here. There's a, um, there's a positive feedback loop and a double negative feedback loop. They're sort of mirror image circuits here, where um, active CDK1 can bring about the inactivation of V1 through multi-site phosphorylation. Active V1 can bring about the phosphorylation and inactivation of CDK1 through single-sided phosphorylation. So that's sort of mutual inhibition or double negative feedback there. And then here we've got positive feedback where active CDK1 can bring about the phosphorylation, the multi-site phosphorylation and activation of this protein, CDC25. When it's active, it can take off the inhibitory phosphorylation that we one can put on CDK1. So this activates that, that activates that. And these are well-conserved circuits. Um, v1, as far as I know, is present in all eukaryotes where it's been looked for. CDC25, I don't think, is present in plants, but it's present in animals and in fungi and some basal eukaryotes. So this is a well-conserved chunk of the circuitry. Yeah? Sorry, uh, is there a regulation at the transcriptional level for CDK1? Is there a transcriptional regulation of CDK1? Not in the frog um, embryonic cell cycle. Okay, so everything that we're dealing with here is, um, is uh, happening at the level of protein translation and then post-translational modifications of proteins. Yeah, but I expect that if uh, CDK1 is the, goes to the proteasome, uh, after a certain round of division, uh, you, you don't have a CDK1 anymore, no? Um, the CDK1 is certainly transcriptionally regulated in other contexts, like when you have neurons differentiate and, and uh, get, get done with, with their divisions. But for our purposes, everything is present at, um, at um, constant message abundance, and all the proteins that we're dealing with are present at constant abundance except for the, the cyclin to a first approximation. V1 was originally discovered in S. Pombe, but it has yeah. nothing to do with size here. <clears throat> well, it, um, the, the original poppy screen that uncovered all the cell cycle regulators that, that, that we know about now was, was, was really a cell size um, screen. So if you end up with, um, with defects in, um, in V1, if you end up with lots of function mutations in V1, um, you end up not being able to inhibit this well enough. The pombi will do mitosis too early and divide it to smaller size. Is that also true of frog? Um, yes, although there's no growth involved. But you can. But, but if you knock down V1, you you um, activate this Thank too you. early. So I didn't quite understand the uh, this positive and double negative feedback circuit. So here they look like they act independently of each other, but when you were describing them, you, you said that CDC25 is acting on the phosphorylation side put there by V1. Yeah, so um, they're, they, they, um, they, they, they are acting on the same site on CDK1. Um, so if you, 
V1 inhibits CDK1. CDC25, the only thing that it does is to, to remove that phosphate and um, disinhibit the CDK1. So for example, if you didn't have V1 around, you wouldn't need CDC25. Because all it does is remove the thing that V1 puts on. Well, I would need it, and uh, if I had it, it would have no effect. So that's a strong effect. Um, well, if, if, if all CDC25 does is to remove a phosphate that V1 puts on with CDK1, then if you don't have V1, there's nothing for CDC25 to, to do. So what happens in plants? You said that CDC25 is in present. Yeah, I don't know. So, um, and in general, we don't know much about cell cycle regulation in plants. I know that Fred Cross has decided to do a, um, a, a, a big um, screen for, for cell cycle mutants in, um, in a model plant in Clamidomonas um, to, um, um, to, to see if there are basic, if there are huge differences in the, in the logic or if it's the same kind of thing going on. But presumably there's a different phosphatase, not a CDC25 family phosphatase, that's doing this um, dephosphorylation. There's a V1 there. Um, but what we don't know is whether this kind of um, topology, uh, positive feedback topology is present there or not. All right, so if that's, if this is near universal and well conserved, um, then the question is what, what's it doing? I mean, this part of the circuit is, we expect it to be there. This part of the circuit doesn't seem like something that would necessarily be required for getting good oscillation. So, so what's it doing? And there are lots of things that a positive feedback loop or a double negative feedback loop can accomplish. They can, um, they can, they can give you magnitude amplification. Take a small number of active signaling molecules and amplify them up to a huge number of signaling molecules. Or they can give you um, sensitivity amplification, where a small change in an input signal gets amplified up to a huge change in an output um, from, the, from the circuit. But the thing that these loops are probably most famous for is, is bi-stability. It's, it's not a given um, when, you, when you know the, the topology is there, but, but it's what these are most famous for. And bi-stability could allow the system to, to have a very um, decisive and um, hysteretic, difficult to reverse uh, transition from interphase into mitosis, which seems a lot like the way the biology really is here. Um, so by bi-stability, I mean um, if, if CDK1 was just a normal enzyme activated by the binding cyclin, you would expect that as cyclin concentration increased, CDK1 activity would increase hyperbolically until 100% of the CDK1 molecules were activated. It turned out that you needed two cyclin molecules to bind to CDK1, and there was cooperativity in that binding, then maybe you could get a sigmoidal stimulus response relationship. But with bistability, you can get this cool kind of thing where initially you get very little um, um, activation out of CDK1, but then you get to a saddle node bifurcation, and that's a sort of tipping point for the system um, where a little bit of active CDK1 inactivates some V1, which allows more CDK1 to get activated, which allows more V1 to get inactivated. And you flip yourself up 
um, to a qualitatively different stable steady state up here. And then if you were to reverse the process and increase the amount of cyclone like you do during mycotic exit, the expectation was you'd flip down to this state but at a different threshold concentration through another satellite bifurcation. So satellite bifurcations we think of as, as being important in cell fate decisions when you go from one qualitatively different fate, stable fate, to another stable fate in cells that are differentiating. Maybe the cell cycle is also using the same kind of thing to make the, the transition between mitosis and interphase really dramatic. And the time scale for that flip has been measured? Um, yeah, the time scale for this flip is probably on the order of a minute. And that's roughly a diffusion time for the a protein to go across the... the no, it's mostly a reaction time. It's reaction Diffusion time is quicker than this. It's mostly... Protein kinases as enzymes are not the world's fastest um, uh, uh, enzymes. Um, so um, so this, is, this seems like a pretty quick flip to me, but, it's, um, but, but if this was carbonic anhydrase or something, it could go orders of magnitude faster. All right, so um, I'll show you an experiment now. Um, the first experiment is to see whether this possible behavior, this bistability that I've shown schematically up here, is actually exhibited by CDK1 when you give it different concentrations of cyclone. So the, the, the key to the experiment is to be able to start in interphase and dial up the cyclone concentration, or start in M phase and dial down the cyclone concentration. And there's, there's not any easy way to do that in intact cells. But um, through this miracle that God gave us, um, frog egg extracts will do big portions of the cell cycle in vitro. And um, that makes it possible to start with an extract that has no cyclone around and give it different amounts of non-degradable cyclone. Or start with an extract that's got lots of cyclone give it different amounts of non-degradable cyclone, and then degrade the endogenous cyclone to make it fall down to different levels down here and compare the results. And here's the um, basic protocol. Um, start with frog eggs, pack them so that there's as little extracellular buffer as, as possible there. Um, spin them harder to shear them and squeeze out this delicious mocha-flavored juice. Um, here, let me just have a little more. <laughs> um, and then you can do biochemistry on this. You can even sort of do cell biology on this. If you add demembranated sperm chromatin to these extracts, sperm chromatin will form nuclei. DNA unpacks, um, replicates, and then the nuclear envelopes break down and the chromatin condenses when the extract goes into mitosis. Um, so here's the results. So the, sorry, just a technical question. Mm -hmm. so, so the oocyte nuclei get stuff down in the pellet? Um, the egg nucleus um, is not present, actually, but the eggs are in the middle of um, meiosis two, and they don't have any nuclear envelopes. I think that the, the tiny, tiny little bit of DNA that's in here probably does pellet 
and end up somewhere down here. Most of this stuff down here is pigment granules and yolk platelets. Um, that's almost half the volume of a, of a brown vein. So the extract is practically DNA-free, is that right? Yeah. And then you're adding your sperm Yep. All right, so if you start with an interphase extract, dial up the cyclin, you don't get very much CDK1 activity until you get to um, a, a threshold and then you flip up to a high amount of activity. And then it goes higher and higher and higher as you, until you saturate the CDK1 with cyclin. I mean, if you start in M phase and dial down the cyclin concentration, falls, but there's a little bit different um, threshold for falling all the way down low activity. And the significance here is that all these activities down here are too low for an extract to be in M phase. And all the activities up here are high enough for an extract to be in M phase. So it's sort of skipping over the steady states, skip over the region where you're sort of intermediate between the two states. What is the strange data point at 75 nanomolar? No error bars? Experimental science. I understand. Um, yeah, that's just that's just the way it was. That was a um, that was a single data point as opposed to this was um, I think four experiments pooled together, and in one experiment, Joe Pomeran used a different concentration of cyclin than he did in the other experiments, and so that's why there's no error bar there. It's not that it was only done once. It was only done once. This this one point was. Thank you. All right, now to, to me, the, um, the sort of cell biology of this hysteretic response is a little more striking than the, than the kinase acids. So these are, are um, nuclei that have been formed in the extract. There's three nuclei, two big ones and one small one there. And then they're the same with the DNA guy. And these, these are in the interphase. They're nice and round, and the DNA looks pretty bland in there. Interphase, 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 interphase. They'll stay in interphase essentially for until the extract dies. And then finally, mitosis up there, where the DNA is now splayed out and condensed. Um, but if you start in M phase, you're in M phase, M phase, M phase, and they'll stay like that again until the extract dies. And finally, you get some sort of intermediate forms there, and then good interphase nuclei down there. So there really is a difference in that there's hysteresis in the cell biology of the, of the process here. All right, so, so let me again show you sort of what, what we've done here. We've, um, we've been using non-degradable cyclins. So take kind of this part of the circuit out of consideration. Using this as an input stimulus, then we've shown that this little subcircuit of the whole oscillator circuit um, acts like a hysteretic switch with a, a monostable response at low cycling concentrations, a monostable response at high cycling concentrations, and a bistable response in between. All right, now bistability is not an inevitable consequence of having positive feedback loops. Um, if you want to build bistability into a model, uh, it's possible to do it without building sigmoidal responses into the individual response functions of the, of the feedback loops, but it's hard. Um, the way to make it happen relatively easily 
is to make the response functions in the feedback loops be very switch-like themselves, be, be, um, be highly cooperative or highly ultra-sensitive. And so that made us look to see whether there was ultra-sensitivity in the steady-state responses of the individual loop components. So here's V1. V1 is inactivated by CDK1 through multi-site phosphorylation mechanism. <coughs> And if you dial up the CDK1 concentration and wait for V1 activity to approach a steady state, it's pulled data from, I think, eight or nine experiments. Um, what you see is a decrease, but you see a decrease where there's sort of a threshold here and then a sharp decrease, and, and you get all the activity gone. Um, it's fitted pretty reasonably by, by uh, um, a hill curve, an inhibitory hill function with a hill coefficient of about 3.5. Um, for those of you who know about cooperative enzymes, that's a, that's a big number. Um, hemoglobin's cooperativity for oxygen binding is about 2.7. So this is, this is world-class nonlinearity in the response of we one to CDK1. Do you think that depends on the fact that it has multi-site phosphorylation and it's a <clears throat> it's effectively a non-linearity within the response of individual molecules to the number of phosphates that have been put on by CDK1? Yep, that's exactly what we think. And um, yes, um, you actually think that it's a it's a combination of mechanisms that leads to this big number, and we know more about the regulation of we one than we do about any of the other components in the circuit. But part of it is V1 um, is phosphorylated by CDK1 at eight different sites in its C terminus, or in, sorry, in its N terminus. So if this is um, a stick diagram of V1, V1 is a protein kinase, and it has a recognizable kinase domain um, in the in the C-terminal half of the molecule. Um, this has been crystallized. Looks like every other kinase domain that's that's been crystallized and had its structure solved. Then, in the N-terminus, there are a couple of small regions where the N-terminus is pretty well conserved. And you can see, see a little kind of island of conservation all the way back to fungal versions of we one And then most of the N-terminus is very poorly conserved, so you can't even recognize the, the corresponding amino acids between frog and human we one um, There are eight phosphorylation sites here. We think now that these three phosphorylation sites have to be phosphorylated in order to um, inactivate We1. Um, but for whatever reason, these are the last phosphorylation sites to get phosphorylated. So these initial phosphorylation sites in the more poorly structured part of the We1 protein act as, in part, as decoys um, preventing CDK1 from, from getting access to these money sites. Um, but also, one of these sites, this one here, when it gets phosphorylated, it sets up a phosphoepitope that allows the binding of CDK1 to V1 with high affinity. Um, and so you get a bunch of sort of nonsense for a while. Eventually, you phosphorylate this site. That allows CDK1 to bind and phosphorylate these hard to phosphorylate sites. It's sort of a, a very simple 
mechanism for cooperativity that doesn't involve anything too fancy, just sort of phosphoepitopes, set up a binding site, bind, do your stuff. That's part of it. Part of, the, part of it, we think, comes from the competition between V1 and other CDK1 substrates for access to CDK1. So if a protein like CDK1 has hundreds of different substrates, the highest affinity substrates get first crack at the CDK1. And once they're fully phosphorylated, then um, the next increments of CDK1 activity can, can spill over to do the next best substrates. And we think that that's involved too. But that the uh, last three cycles of phosphorylation, is that processive or distributed? We don't know. And we, we don't know much about the, the order except that these five sites tend to be first and these three sites tend to be a little bit later, a few minutes later. All right. Um, if you look at the activity of CDC25 as a function of CDK1 activity, it's ultra-sensitive too with an even bigger hill exponent, exponent of DAB11. Um, and the mechanism there, we think, is a variation on this multi-site mechanism for the inactivation of, of we one although we don't know as many details about it. All right, so we've got positive feedback loop, double negative feedback loop, we've got the shapes of the individual response functions within the loop. The next question we addressed was, do we have enough information to reconstruct what we know experimentally that CDK1 uh, exhibits a, a bistable um, um, S-shaped response to the cyclone protein. Um, so let's just derive what the stimulus response curve ought to be for CDK1 as a function of uh, concentrations of all these other things. If CDK1, let's imagine CDK1 is flipping back and forth between its active state, which is not phosphorylated, and its inactive state. Let's imagine the simplest possible kinetics for the inactivation and activation of CDK1, uh, mass order kinetics. So uh, law of mass action kinetics. Um, so here we've got um, the activation rate, uh, the positive rate of production of active CDK1, be proportional to how much active CDC25 there is to activate it, how much CDK, inactive CDK1 there is to be activated. And then the inactivation rate is proportional to how much active V1 there is and how much active CDK1 there is to be um, activated. So we've got um, a few parameters. We've got one, two, three, four variables here. And we know it's steady state. There has to be a balance there. So we've got an algebraic equation and four variables that we want to solve. There's no cooperativity at that point. Um, we're not assuming any at this point. In the, in the, the um, activation of CDK1, do you cooperativity? We haven't measured it, but my bet is no, because it's just putting on one site and taking off one site by one molecule of CDC25 in the case of the activation and by one molecule of V1 in the case of the inactivation. So we've never measured it, but. Um, I, I, I would bet that, that we would get something like mass action kinetics out of that. In contrast to what we get 
for the response function of CDC25 to CDK1 and V1 to CDK1. This another differential equation for CDC25 then? Or? Um, there would be um, if, if we wanted to, but we've, um, we, we empirically know it now because we measured it. Uh -huh. So we, we, we can a steady state. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be just a steady state response function. And we know empirically that it's a hill function with a hill coefficient of about 11. And we know that the background level of activity is about a fifth the maximal stimulated level of activity. And we measure the EC50 for the um, activation of, of CDC25 by CDK1. That 11 means 11 phosphorylation sites? Or? No, that just means that. Um, Very steep. <laughs> that just means right. that that's the best fit hill function for the um, empirical stimulus response relationship. All right, and then V1, another there. So now we've, um, we've got only two variables left. We've got a bunch of parameters, but two variables inactive CDK1 and active CDK1. We can get rid of, the, rid of this one by assuming that all the cyclin that we add is either going to end up bound to CDK1 in the active state or bound to CDK1 in the inactive state. So now we have a single algebraic equation that implicitly defines the relationship between how much cyclin we put into an extract and how much CDK1 activity we get out of steady state. All the parameters are measured. So let's look to see what the equation looks like, and it looks like this. And it's not a perfect reproduction of the data, but it's, it's pretty, pretty close. So our bet is that we, we do really understand the basis of this, this continuous stimulus response relationship. This is a, this is a bistable hysteretic switch into activity states. You go into mitosis, you go through this saddle node bifurcation, and you come out of mitosis, you go through that saddle node bifurcation. All right, so that's steady state responses, but then in the whole circuit, we've got not constant levels of cyclin, but constantly synthesized cyclin. And after CDK1 gets active, it brings about the inactivation of APC. So, we can go from this um, successful formula for the steady state response to a possible um, system of equations to describe the oscillations. To say that the active CDK1 is going to be proportional to all this steady state stuff, plus a constant synthesis term, and then um, a degradation term, where active CDK1 can be destroyed by the APC. And the one thing that we need to know here is the, um, the response function for APC activity is a function of CDK1 activity. And then a second equation for total cyclone synthesis, again, will be synthesized at that rate, and it will be destroyed depending on how much APC there is present. So we need to know the response function here, and it's a same kind of deal. Um, the, the response of APC is measured by the degradation rate of a fluorescent APC substrate's destruction. Um, is uh, um, well approximated by basically a step function. The fitted curve here has a Hill coefficient of, of 17, but you could also fit a, a, a Hill exponent of, of infinity to the 
data and it would look, look pretty reasonable too. Um, so we've got um, this ultra-sensitive response function, this ultra-sensitive response function, this ultra-sensitive response function. We can measure the synthesis rate and ask what the model then does. And it, um, it gives sawtooth oscillations in siphon concentrations and spiky oscillations in CDK1 activity, like what you see in extracts. Here's, here's some example of real data from, from extracts, just seeing the explosions up of CDK1 activity. So we think that in extracts, the system operates as an oscillator that's not too different from a relaxation oscillator, an oscillation, an oscillation that's basically a traversal around this hysteretic loop defined by this S-shaped null climb, which is basically the CDK1 response function of siphon. So you walk up with increasing amounts of siphon concentration, explode up here, walk back down, plummet down there, walk back up. And so on and so forth. So you see the second of bifurcation directly moving <laughs> Well, that's really what we did here, I think. There it is. I think. I guess in the model, if you sort of move, move towards something, you could see directly a bifurcation. Well, here's a, here's there's 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 a saddle, there's a node, can come together and disappear. If if you take this as the bifurcation parameter. But at this level of the of the very nice modeling, you're not putting in oscillations. You're putting them in by hand. I mean, I don't. There's a periodicity, and and things shoot up and shoot down. But you are sweeping through these saddle node bifurcations. Uh, by the experimental protocol, um, you, you don't have a, an, an actual oscillator. An, a, a silicon, these equations that will they just oscillate forever? If I just run them, that's bad. So this, so, so not the steady state equation. But once you have cyclic synthesis, then these aren't saddle node bifurcations anymore. These are these are knees on a null climb. Okay. And um, here's here's the two null climbs for the full system. There's one intersection. It's a it's a steady state. It's an unstable steady state. Okay. And what you do is anywhere you start in phase space, you end up eventually converging to this nice limit cycle. So when you jump up, it, it, the system automatically starts decreasing, decreasing, and you jump down, it automatically starts increasing. Yep. So via the APC. Uh, yep. No, thank you. And like relaxation oscillators, it's you can think of it as a bunch of discrete steps here. Here's the here's the step where you're accumulating siphon, then you run into um, to, to what would be if this was just the just the the um, the CDK response to cycling without any APC around you, you run into that saddle node bifurcation and you, and you pop up here. But then this snow climb starts dragging you back down, then you drop down there. So, so you don't have to explicitly build into this any sort of <coughs> conveyor belt of phosphorylations on the APC that produces a lag. You nope. just appeal to this very strong ultrasensitivity. That's true. However, there is a lag in APC activation. In, um, 
there's a in in extracts it's as long as a 15 minute lag. If you if you take an extract and, and activate the CDK1 immediately by cycling by including V1 inhibitors so that the uh, um, you, you can get to, to maximal mitotic levels of, of CDK1 activity almost immediately. You don't see a response of the APC as measured by securing degradation for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So although this model produces nice oscillations, there's stuff that's not in it that's actually required to explain the sort of biology or biochemistry that you just described. That's true. If you add then into the model a time delay, you can do it a couple of ways. You can, you can do it by changing these to delay differential equations. And what you get is the oscillations will be a little bit slower. The amplitude of the oscillations is a little bit bigger. But basically, it's kind of the same as what I'm showing here without the delay. Or you can build a time delay into the model by assuming not the, not the late differential equations, but by writing, writing down, say, 30 different equations for the successive multi-site phosphorylation of APC. And just requiring that it's only the last one that's active. Or yeah, something. the last one's active, and it takes 15 minutes to, to get to the last one. And then in that case, again, you make the oscillations a little bit slower, a little bit higher in amplitude, but it's, it's basically the same picture as I showed here. And when that happens, you make the sort of temporal duration of the high level of CDK1 activity substantially longer because it goes up and stays up until that delay has been satisfied. Yep, let me see. I'm... Yeah, I, I can show you the real thing instead of just talking to you about it. If, if you look in the, the phase plane, um, if this was the, the limit cycle for the oscillation with no phase delays, here's what you get with the 15-minute with the delay. So it's, um, to, to me, it, it's, um, the, the time delay also helps you to, um, to, to have more robust oscillations. You can vary parameters in the model more without making the oscillations go away. But, but, but it's remarkable, given how big the delay is, how well you can do with just a two ODE model, no time delay, where, the time, where basically the temporal separation between these antagonistic events is enforced by the bi-stability in this activation and the high amounts of, of ultra-sensitivity in the regulation of this. Is it fair to say that the 2OD e model predicts the period, the periodicity, the, um, or that's put in at some earlier stages for measurement? The uh, uh, minute uh, cycle time? 
No, we, it doesn't predict the cycle time. So, um, so we, we uh, there are adjustable parameters that that that, um, that we fit to the cycle time. So the fact that it's too long here. That's just because we chose parameters that made the, the no time delay model be pretty realistic, and we wanted to compare this to, to that without readjusting the parameters. Thank you for these questions. All right, so that's. That's part one. That's, um, that's the, the, I guess the argument there is that we understand the core workings of this um, embryonic cell cycle oscillator. Uh, it's got a um, bistable trigger. The CK1 activation is hysteretic. Um, that bistability arises in part, we think, because um, you've got this, this cool mirror image topology of a double negative feedback loop and a, and a positive feedback loop. Plus, you've got such highly ultra-sensitive response functions built into each of the feedback loops. We think that the, the transition into mitosis is basically the traversal of a saddle node bifurcation. And that kind of unifies this with every other traversal of a saddle node bifurcation in biology or physics. And, um, if you take this steady state response and add cyclone synthesis to it and destruction to it, you can get an oscillator that runs a lot like a relaxation oscillator. That's pretty realistic looking. So, so, so mainly what I'm trying to say here is we think we understand the basic workings of the embryonic cell cycle. So any other questions before I go on to, to topic two? Just ask.